You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. What drives our actions? What drives our beliefs? What drives our decisions that we're making in the world? The ideas that we conjure up or the habitual ideas that we carry about ourselves and about the world around us. What's driving all this? At its core, what's driving these things is our identity, the person that we see ourselves as. Everything that we do is in congruence with who we believe ourselves to be and what we believe about the world around us. We will very rarely take any action or have thoughts that are outside the paradigm of who we think we are. That creates so much dissonance and and discomfort when we start to venture outside of our typical day-to-day thoughts, perceptions, actions. And so for many of us, we recoil. We roll up like a roly-poly when faced with these changes, when we face with uncertainty and we're operating differently, right? Because the human brain is really hardwired to habituate things, to create patterns, to create certain pathways firing on automatic. The human brain is very well versed in creating automation, which is amazing because that frees us up for more opportunity, for more growth, for more exploration. That's why we are the species that we are today. Automation, opening up possibility for more exploration. But here's the thing. We can automate behaviors, beliefs, and perceptions that are disempowering us, that are leading to poor outcomes with our health, with our success with our relationships and the list goes on and on and on because we have to get honest about the results that we're seeing in our lives are the results that we're seeing truly what we desire in our core if we could choose any outcome that we really want and honest about those things because that's another layer of dissonance that takes place we're often not honest about what we truly want because we're operating on what we believe we're worthy of of what we believe we can have or can achieve. And so if we're honest about what we want, are our lives bearing out the results that are congruent with the life that we truly want? Because at the end of the day, that's what is really about that keyword congruency. Because oftentimes it's our identity that is outpicturing those results. And so if we're wanting to change our results, oftentimes we're fighting the symptoms of these things, our goals, our behaviors, our ideas, instead of addressing the root cause, which is our identity. So this shift is where the change really happens. In this episode today, I guarantee you, the person that you are at the end of this episode is going to be different from the person who clicked play. It is that powerful, that remarkable. You're going to have an aha moment or 20. And we've got an absolutely world-changing expert here to provide some profound tools on shifting our identity, on truly taking control of our thinking and our perspective and creating the life that we desire and deserve because we are that powerful. But oftentimes we're not educated about how powerful we truly are. We're not given the tools to access our ability to shift our identity, to be able to start to think the thoughts that we wanna think, to think the thoughts that empower us, to engage in habits that empower us and to lead to better outcomes but we have the power. And today is about education on how to access those things. So really, really excited about that. Obviously, 
being able to make healthy decisions is a lot easier when we're actually healthy. When we're physically and mentally healthy, it just makes the process easier. It's not that it's impossible when we're not physically doing well to express thoughts of empowerment and to make healthy choices. It's just biologically, psychologically more difficult because our bodies are dealing with an environment of chaos, to put it simply. You know, being in a state of chronic inflammation is a state of, if you listen to the word and the root of inflammation, it's a state where things are set ablaze. You know, there's an internal fire that's taking place that has gotten out of control. It's a, it's a wildfire at this point. Now, to be clear, inflammation is not a bad thing. We need inflammation in order to live. Without inflammation, we don't heal. We don't have normal cell replication. Inflammation is built into the system for us to grow and to improve and to evolve. But when inflammation becomes chronic, when it's excessive, that's when we start to burn the system down from the inside out. And so addressing inflammation, getting ourselves into a place where we have a foundation of health to grow and to build from should be of the utmost importance today. And so for me, as you already know, it's about what is clinically proven to not just be the hundredth and tenth best thing to address this inflammation. What are the top five things, top three things? One of the most remarkable things for addressing inflammation is found, and this is highlighted in a study published in Diabetes, Metabolic Syndrome, and Obesity. And it found that this particular berry called amla berry significantly improves endothelial function and reduced biomarkers of oxidative stress and systemic inflammation in patients who've already dipped into type 2 diabetes with one of the contributing agents being that inflammation. Right, so vitamin C, amla berry is one of the top five botanical sources of vitamin C. Vitamin C, we tend to think about it for the immune system function, but it's also a very powerful antioxidant compound and also very remarkable at reducing inflammation. But the key here is not leaning towards or looking at these synthetic forms of vitamin C that simply don't bear out in clinical data as being that effective. As a matter of fact, if you look at the number one botanical source of vitamin C ever discovered, the most vitamin C concentrated food ever discovered is called camu camu berry. And this actually a really fantastic peer-reviewed study putting camu camu berry up against synthetic forms of vitamin C. Now, camu camu berry has about 700% of your RDA of vitamin C in just under a teaspoon to give you a little bit of a barometer of how much vitamin C is actually here. But a study published in the Journal of Cardiology had 20 male smokers consume camu camu berry daily over the course of a one-week study and found that it led to significantly lowered oxidative stress and lowered inflammatory biomarkers like C-reactive protein. So reducing inflammation in people who are creating, habitually creating inflammation by smoking, all right? So versus there were no changes in these biomarkers in the group who received the conventional synthetic vitamin C supplement, which is the kind of stuff that you see as you're checking out at the grocery store, those vitamin C packets. The synthetic stuff is an isolated version of this, and it's not coming from botanical high-quality sources that has the cofactors and enzymes and biopotentiators that actually help the vitamin C to do what vitamin C does. 
Now, I get my top three botanical sources of vitamin C. Camel Camel Berry, Amla Berry, and Acerola Cherry. Organic, no binders, no fillers, no nefarious stuff, which is common in so many supplements today. I get all of these three vitamin C-dense superfoods, and I travel with it. This is something I brought along with me. I just got back from speaking at an event in Mexico. I'm loading up on my vitamin C. I get this from Paleo Valley. And right now, to celebrate the nine-year anniversary of the Model Health Show, I reached out to Paleo Valley literally before I recorded an episode recently because I just had the idea, like, what can we do to help to celebrate and to give people access who, because maybe the price point isn't something that they're able to manage. Like, I want everybody to be able to access this wonderful vitamin C supplement. And I reached out and I asked, what can you do for my audience? And this essential C formula that they have is normally $34.99. But right now, for a limited time, Paleo Valley, to celebrate the nine-year anniversary of the Model Health Show, you can get the Essential C formula for just $4.99. That's right. They did this specifically for us to celebrate our nine-year anniversary. Go to paleovalley.com forward slash nine-year special. That's the number nine-year special. paleovalley.com forward slash nine-year special. You're going to get, for a limited time, I don't know how long they're going to keep this up, but $34.99, nope, X that out, $4.99 for a limited time to get your hands on the Essential C Complex. Huge fan. It's one of my all-time favorite things. Listen, I'm not exaggerating. I've been utilizing Camu Camu Berry and Amla Berry and Acerola Cherry for years, well over 10 years. And I was buying it from different companies, but now to get a company who's doing stuff the right way, and it's all together in one formula. It's just amazing. It's amazing. And again, it's super simple, limited time special to celebrate the nine-year anniversary of the Model Health Show. Go to paleovalley.com forward slash nine years special. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled, This is by far the best podcast on Apple, 100% fire by It's Me, Debbie B. I love this podcast. Every time I listen, I come away with a new nugget of health knowledge that I apply to my life. He always has great tips and great guests on the show. I can't tell you how much I love this review. Thank you so much for sharing your voice and taking a moment to leave this review over on Apple Podcasts. I really do appreciate it. And listen, speaking of special guests, this episode today is absolute fire. Our guest today is the one and only Ed Milet, and he's one of the most sought after speakers, trainers, best-selling authors in the world. And today you're gonna find out why. He's accumulated all the things, his success, his level of success, financial success, his vocation, his impact, his health, all of these things, he's just top tier. And he's dedicated his life to not only achieving these things, but teaching other people the formula on how to get from where they are to where they truly want to be. And he's one of the most remarkable human beings that I've ever met in terms of his giving and in terms of his presence. And to be able to learn from people who truly walk their talk and to who've, you know, there's this wonderful statement that success leaves clues. This is somebody, Ed Milet, to truly tune in and listen, not just listen, but really deeply listen with our inner ear, listen with our heart 
and to pick up this experience and these tools. And one of the things that I really love about Ed is that he brings these principles to bear in such an accessible way so that we could take that tool, we could take that life nugget, that insight, and apply it directly to our lives starting now. So really excited about this and very grateful to be able to share this conversation with the one and only Ed Milet. We've got a legend in the house, you know, somebody that I admire and man, just absolutely inspirational. Like you're one of the few people like I always try to check in and see what you're up to. Thank you. Your your words of encouragement, the messages that you share, mm-hmm. you know, through social media and other channels, like it's just bar none, man. Like Thank you're you. such a you're real. And the thing is I get to know you yeah. and to see the alignment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously social media is a complex terrain and you never really know who's, who's real. about that life. And you're absolutely about that life. Thank Ed Milet. He's back on the Model Health Show. What's up, man? Thank you for having me. The affection, love, and admiration is extraordinarily mutual, as you know. So only regret I don't see you enough, brother. Every time I see you, my heart smiles. I know it sounds <laughs> cheesy, but like I smile. I smile when I see you. My heart feels warm. So I'm thrilled we get to spend some time together. Yeah, yeah, me too. And also, of course, you came matching the set. I don't well, know if you, you know, peeped that. I'm dialed in, bro. Attention <laughs> to detail. <laughs> Let's go. And now, yeah, I'm here now in LA. Last time when I saw you, yep. we hadn't moved out here yet. That's right. And I got to yeah. spend some time with you at your place. Yep. And then you came on my show after that during yeah. the, uh, yeah. the stuff. You came on, we zoomed <laughs> During it. the C word. Yeah, during the C word. If we say it, something happens to the podcast. So yeah. I'm not going to say that, but- yeah, you came on the Zoom then. We promoted your book, so I just got yeah. to talk to you then. Yeah. yeah, and it crushed it too. Yeah, like, it sure did. Yeah. You crushed. Yeah, the downloads exploded. So that's thanks to you, not me. I just sat there and listened. <laughs> Whatever, man. <laughs> it's true. Well, listen, I've got you here, The Power of One More, mm-hmm. your latest book, and I'm loving it. Thank I'm you. I'm loving it. Thank you. Um, I especially love chapter two, which we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. But let's kick things off and talk about the principle, The Power of One More. What does that actually mean? It's got a couple dual meanings. Probably the first one, I wrote the book when my dad passed away last year. And there was all these themes in my life with my father, who was my hero, about one more. But my dad's my hero because he changed. I'm I'm in the space. I believe people can change their lives because I watched my hero do it. My dad was an alcoholic, as you know, first 15 years of my life. And there's all these one mores that really changed his life and mine. So the first one was he tried to get sober 100 times. And it just didn't work. And we were driving one day to a Little League baseball game. Never forget this. My dad was crying. Never seen him cry before that or after that. So he wouldn't even look at me. But I'm seeing water come out of my dad. My dad was a dude. Like, I see my dad in a lot of scraps. Like, I see my dad in more than 40 fights as a little boy. Real actual fights. Like, all the time. Restaurants, baseball games, side of the freeway. My dad was nuts. And uh, so crying wasn't his jam at all. And uh, then he finally turned to me and he pulled over. He goes, hey, I just want you to know I'm going to go away for a little bit. And when I come back, I'm going to try to quit drinking. And it changed my life, changed uh, millions of other people's lives too. I said, what would be any different this time? He goes, I don't know, but I'm going to give it one more try. I have an actual chapter in the book called One More Try. And I said, why? He goes, because I'm losing my family. Your mom's taking you and your sisters. And you and your sisters deserve someone you can be proud of to be your dad. And your mom deserves a husband she could respect. I'll literally never forget it. And he got sober that time. And he stayed that way for 35 years. The irony, you'll laugh at this. My dad got sober on 420. Only, <laughs> only my dad would get sober on 4 friggin' 20. And the rest of his life, he never celebrated his actual birthday. He only celebrated his sobriety birthday on 420. Then when he got sober, Sean, I said, hey, daddy, are you going to stay sober the rest of your life? He says, no, I don't know. I'm going to stay sober for one more day at a time. So that's the first meaning. The second meaning is this. 
I think there's an issue in the world today that's just it's like it's its own epidemic, which is that people think they're further away from their life they want than they are. They they have this. They don't lack vision. The Bible says where there's no vision, the people perish. But I think if you actually dove into that, it's not that there's no vision. Would you rather be happy or sad, rich or poor, help people or not help people? You got a vision for your life. The problem is you think it's so far away because you think that's far away. You act in accordance with that belief system and you perpetually keep it there. And so, but the truth is that's a lie. I prove it in my life. So have you, your truth is your one relationship, one meeting, one podcast, one book, one new thought, one new emotion away from a completely different life. It's much closer than you think it is, but because you don't understand that, or you don't understand how to find those relationships, those thoughts, those meanings that you keep it that far away. And so I believe that you're one away and that's what the whole book's about. Yeah, man, that's so powerful. <clears throat> You know, even with the story with your dad, it's just Mm -hmm. so remarkable. Just that one more try was the one. It was the one. You know. Can I tell you one thing that just occurred to me, just for me and you? Yeah. Not even in the interview, but I want you to know this. I write the book. It's all these details. It's a heavy book, as you'll agree. A lot on the brain, a lot on habits, leadership, your confidence level, the matrix we talk about. Two weeks ago, this is just for me and you, but everybody can hear it. Something dawned on me. 3.15, I wake up crying, which I cry once in a while. I don't like my dad. I wake Christiana up, my wife. I go, babe, wake up. She says, what? I said, wake up. I said, all, because this decision changed my life for my dad. I said, babe, someone helped daddy. She said, what? I said, someone helped my dad. It just occurred to me 51 years later. Someone helped my dad get sober. In the darkest, most quiet moments of his life, the worst time of my dad's life on his knees, some stranger helped my father in some coffee shop or dark place and helped him change his life. And I don't know who this person is. And our children owe them a debt of gratitude. Our nieces and nephews do. My mom does. Millions of people I reach to. And I said, that's not the crazy part. The crazy part is what qualified this person to help my dad? Their mess. The things they were the most, they were a drug addict and an alcoholic also. Their shameful things. They're things they want to hide the most that they think disqualifies them the most from helping somebody is the very thing that qualified them to help my father in the darkest moment of his life. I got to meet him. I got to... And this is a thing for everyone listening to this. Most people think, I'm not qualified. Sean, he's qualified to help somebody. My let, maybe he's qualified. Me, you have no idea about my sins, my mess, my bankruptcy, my relationships, this thing I'm ashamed of, the lack of accomplishment I've had so far. I'm disqualified from having a great life from helping people. Nothing could be further from the truth. Your humanity, your experiences combined with your gifts are what does qualify you to help other people and make a difference. And so it just made me really emotional to think this beautiful soul who imagine that person, man, when they were drugging and drinking and stealing and lying, they were preparing to help my dad that entire time. So we're always in preparation to change other people's lives, whether we know it or not. Oh man. This man. reminds me of a, a quote from a good friend, Michael Beckwith, mm-hmm. who's been on the show. He's been sitting in that chair. I was asking your guys, one of their favorite shows are like Michael Beckwith. Oh, That's wow. one of the they said. Yeah. See, I wasn't in the room when yeah, they said it's a vibe. Yeah. But he said this statement that God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the call. One million percent right, brother. And we keep thinking that somehow there's these qualifications that need to take place. And the fact of the matter is he'll qualify you. That person was absolutely qualified because they were called to help my dad. Wow. So if you think about it again, you know what? We, we touched on this a little bit before we got started, but just you were like, how's everything going? I'm yeah. just like, you know, first my eyes lit up. Like yep. I was like, everything is so good. But then I... Some of the problems mm-hmm. popped up that mm-hmm. I've dealt with the past few years. Mm-hmm. But for me, I see these things as opportunities. It's just mm-hmm. a choice though. Correct. You know, while you're in it, it can be inflammatory. That's right. And it's just like, how mm. quickly can you start to see the gift and the opportunity in a thing? That's right. You know, and so understanding that that guy's mess 
that helped to transform your, your lives and the lives of millions of people that you've impacted. The ripple effect's crazy. You had no idea. That's right. Right? But it was just still even, it was one decision, That's you know, right. for even him to, to, to work with your dad. Like, That's right. Man, it was so his powerful. decision to help my dad. It was that relationship that changed my dad's life. We're all, you and I were talking off camera about our wives. Like, think about that one decision, that one relationship, how much it's changed your life. We just, here's the deal, man. We aren't looking for them. We're, they're there. These relationships, these meetings, these thoughts, these emotions are around us all the time, but we're not seeing them because they're not part of our matrix. They're not part of our reticular activating system in our brain. So we're oblivious to them because we think this stuff's so far away or we're disqualified. So we're not even really conscious of what's around us that could be the resources to deliver on these things in our life. And that's a lot of the reason why I wrote the book. It's like, here's the tools of how to find these things. I love Think and Grow Rich. It's like, other than the Bible, it's probably my favorite book, right? But the truth is, you don't just think and get rich. You have to do things. And so no one's written the dang gum book of like, what do you think and what do you do simultaneously in congruency that produce a result? What do I need to think? What do I need to do? And when I do them together, it changes things. And so that's the stuff that's in the book, at least I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with this because you kick things yeah. off with one more identity. Yeah. And identity is one of the <clears throat> things that I associate with you. Okay. Because you said something about identity in one of our conversations that really stuck with me. And if you could, let's dive in on that one because it's really, I think it's the, at the beginning of the book for a reason. It is. I think it's, I think it's the most powerful force for human beings is their identity. And the identity, your identity is the thoughts, beliefs, concepts that you hold to be the most true about you. And I said this to you another time. It's like a thermostat that's sitting right there on that wall right there. It sets the entire temperature for your life. And so if your happiness thermostat is set at 75 degrees or your wealth thermostat or your health thermostat, is set at 75 degrees. Let's just use financial. 75 degrees of financial worth you think you have. You can acquire all the skills in the world and you can begin to produce the results. You find the right business, you're producing, you're at 85, 90, 95, 100, you're cranking. Somehow within a year or two, you find a way to turn the air conditioners on and cool it right back down to what you believe you deserve. And you think it's coincidental. Ah, the market changed. The stock market, the real estate, uh, supply chain. Uh, I had to loan some money to a friend. My car broke down. Nope. That ain't what happened. What happened was you turned the air conditioners on because your results exceeded your identity. And when that happens, you will always find a way to bring it back. Even in the health space, you know this. You'll see somebody with all the tools you've given them. This is how you can drop that weight. This is how you can become more healthy. They implement all the tools, but internally, they still believe they're 75 degrees of health or wellness. They find a way within a year or two to put the weight back on in spite of the tools they have. And so there's a lot of tools in the book. But how do you change your identity? And I say there's a holy trilogy of the identity change. And I believe there are these three things. I'll say them quickly. One is faith. It's an ironic, but if you have faith, it's amazing to me, no matter what your faith, I'm a Christian, but no matter what your faith is, it's amazing to me how you'll have faith on Sunday at church or at your synagogue or your mosque, maybe even go to a Bible study on Wednesdays and you pray. So you got the Lord, you have a meal. Let's hold hands and pray. You're a praying person. But man, when you walk into a business meeting, you're alone. Oh. You walk into a boardroom, you're alone. You go on a sales call, you're all of a sudden alone. The nerves come up. You go back to this old identity you have. But if you're really the son of the highest king of gods, right? If his DNA is running through your blood, your identity ought to be off the charts. So link them to intention. Running on a beach, I'm 30 years old, Maui. I went my first trip to go to Maui. Running the other way is this bald dude with like a sweaty, hairy back. He's running towards me. And it's like the sun's not up yet, so it's dark. And I'm so old, brother. I'm wearing a Sony Walkman with a cassette playing, and so is he. And we run right by each other, and it's Dr. Wayne Dyer, oh. who's one of the gurus of all time of thought and spirituality and life. And I said, Dr. Dyer, you changed my life. 
And he turns and he, he's got a deep voice like me. He goes, and like you, he goes, I doubt that. But he goes, <laughs> you did, but how did I help you? And he mm. walks towards me. We spend about an hour and a half sitting on the beach next oh. to each other, watching the sun come up. And I have this beautiful conversation with this man who becomes my friend the rest of my life. And at the end of it, he goes, Ed, you're going to change the world. And I said, thank you. And I'm sure he said this to other people. He goes, and you're brilliant. And the way you think through things, your mind is very unique. And he goes, but that's not what you should attach your identity to, Ed. You're always going to be chasing it. I said, what is it? He goes, your intentions are so beautiful. You have such beautiful intentions. You want to serve people. You want to make a difference. Please do me a favor in the rest of your life. Attach your identity to your intentions and it'll never go backwards. And so the second one is your intentions. Begin to give yourself more credit and raise that thermostat saying for what you intend to do, the difference you intend to make, and you'll become very resourceful. And then the third thing is association who you're around. And not only are who you're around, but their proximity to you. If you're around someone who's got 150 degrees of wealth in their life and you're a 75 degree or they will heat you up to their proximity eventually over time or at least closer to them. So faith, intention, and association will shift your identity. And I got the chills. Long like, answer, sorry. No, I mean, this is so powerful, so remarkable, and so simple. Thank you. You know, and the simplicity, that's where the beauty is. But that story about Wayne Dyer really hit me. Like I started to like yeah. get choked up a little bit. And I, I gotta so tell powerful. you, man, when I came in here today, I parked my car out there. I said a quick prayer because I don't have every answer in the world, right? I'm a man. I'm 51. The older I get, the more I realize what I don't know. I said a quick prayer. I connected to my faith. I literally reminded myself of how much I want to help people today, the difference I want to make. And I've already got the association thing nailed. Then I came in here feeling pretty good about things. So yes. I've carried that all my life, the intention thing. Yes, that's that's that speaks to the alignment of mm -hmm. who you are. Mm -hmm. Wayne Dyer has had such an impact on my life. Really? I don't talk about it enough. Really? Actually, I don't know if you have put this together, but the second one, Intention, he had a book called The Power of Intention. He was writing it while we were on that beach. Come on. Yes. I, ah. love, I love that you know this, by the way. <laughs> you, know that I've, you know that almost, actually, not no one has ever said that back to me before. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I've that was the first Wayne Dyer book I read was The Power of Intention. He was Same writing here. it while we were sitting there. That Same was when here. he was writing it. I love you, the oh, fact that you man. know that. Listen, there's a statement that he said that I think about <laughs> almost every day. Not every day, but mm -hmm. almost every day. Because especially today, mm -hmm. when there's so much divisiveness yes. on the surface, but I yeah. know the thing is, even when I say a statement like that, mm -hmm. there's we're inherently connected. That's right. It's just a perception of divisiveness. Yeah. Yeah. But he said he was quoting Saint Francis of Assisi, yes. and he said, you know, because everybody's trying to get people to understand them or like mm -hmm. to take on my thing, to listen to me. Mm -hmm. But he said, seek first to understand and then to be understood. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And so I think about that almost every single day. And that's like a thread behind what I do. There's, it's why you're so good at this. You're an incredible listener. I'd love to know where that comes from too, because even in private life, this is you. This is what you just described as you. I think it's why we have a connection because I only have like three or four skills. And one of mine is that. Like, and I know what it comes from if I just share it with you. Because on the other side of our adversities in our lives are often where we develop our greatest gifts. Napoleon Hill says in Think and Grow Rich, I love this. On the other side of temporary pain, you're introduced to your other self, and that other self produces another life. For me, the reason I'm good with being present with people is my dad was an alcoholic. So I'm a five-year-old little boy. I've got three sisters and a mom. When I'm five, brother, when that man would come through the front door, I'd have to quickly be present with him and read him. Is it sober, dad? We're going to go have dinner and maybe shoot some hoops in the backyard? Or is it drunk, dad? Is his tie the wrong way? Is his hair a little bit messed up? Is he slurring his words? Is he walking a little bit slower? And if it's that, Dad, Mimi, get this, get the girls upstairs. Mama, go take a shower. 
and I would be present with my dad. I had to read him by the time I was five. Well, that's one of my biggest skills in business all my life now. And then the second thing would kick in. I'd grab his hand and I'd have to talk to him to change his state. Daddy, I got an A on the spelling test today. I hit a home run in baseball. How was your day? And I would talk him out of that state. And so it is one of truly your biggest gifts. And it's one of mine as well, born out of really something tragic and difficult. And if we look back on our lives with hindsight, this is where you've built a lot of your resiliency, a lot of the skills you have, a lot of the stuff you use to be successful came through temporary pain. Yeah. It's, it's the exact same story, Ed. It was my stepfather and, I mean, functional alcoholic. Um, he worked the 3 to 11 shift. Mm -hmm. And so he went to drunk hungover almost every day. Mm -hmm. And there was a certain, there was a spectrum of his personality that would show up. When he gets a little bit drunk, he, that's the only time he's ever said that he loves me yeah. and that he's giving gifts mm -hmm. and he's ordering food mm -hmm. and he's so jubilant, mm -hmm. right? And it's just like, we like that. Mm -hmm. But then it starts to get into aggression and mm -hmm. anger. Mm -hmm. And eventually the most heinous things I've, I've witnessed, you know, yeah. as far as violence and mm -hmm. the like. And so just, I was constantly monitoring my environment and I was a quote shy kid, but I was also very outgoing. There was these scenarios where I, I started to, you know, I finished my work in fourth grade, my mm -hmm. teacher, Mrs. Norman, I'll never forget it. And then I start acting up, you know, and start, <laughs> and she made an agreement with me that if I behave myself, then at the end of school, every Friday, I could have the floor for 20 minutes. Come on now. And so I would sing, I would really? dance, I would, you know, recite things and just like, really? I don't know what the hell, what, what got what? into me to really? do that. But I always bring a friend with me, you know, my yeah. friend Andre would be right there by my side. But you know, these things were kind of like stirring up the ingredients for me. But outside of that, I was just very perceptive, analyzing the environment constantly, mm. looking at threats because I had to be aware, even just walking outside my door of people's intentions, mm -hmm. you know, because of all the violence that I yeah. saw in my household and also outside of my door. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's where that quality came from. And also I didn't want to, you know, that shy demeanor, it wasn't necessarily that I didn't want to engage or that I w was quote shy. It was just that I was making sure I'm picking my spots. Me too. And if I have something important to say, I'm going to say that mm -hmm. outside of that, like what, what's the point? You I'm know, exactly, so, that's yeah. a, I knew there was something about, you know, I was very similar, me too. I think, I always say I'm introverted, but I think it's more like I pick my spots and I am sizing up the environment. You know, what are the threats in the environment? What do I need to be worried about? I'm really, I still do it. I'm 51 years old. I walk in a restaurant. I always want to know where the exits are. Yeah. And stuff like that is so You're bizarre You're not sending to me. it back to the door. I don't. I very rarely <laughs> do. That's crazy. Yeah. Same yeah. thing. Man, so powerful. So let's yeah. let's dig into chapter two. All okay. Right? This is where you talk about, which I didn't know that you were such a fan of the Matrix. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember when it came out. I was, I was in college mm. and I was working at the Ramada Hotel, okay. front desk, right? <laughs> and I remember that one of the frequent guests, because certain people would just come into town for business. Mm. You know, he was a younger guy compared to the average person coming in there. He's maybe late 20s, early mm. 30s. And he is one of those guys, he'd come in, you know, he'd say hi and, mm. you know, have a good day kind of thing. Mm. But he stopped and he started having this conversation with me because he had just went to see The Matrix. And he was like, you have to see this. Like, I've never seen anything like this. This has changed my life, my perception of reality and all. Yeah. Just like, bro, it's a movie. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right. But of course I see the movie and I'm just like, Whoa. this changes everything. It does right? change everything. And yeah. so let's talk about yeah. this second chapter in the book and what this has to do with 
this is one more in living in your matrix. Yeah, so there's there's a dual meaning in this chapter too, but so I love the movie for a couple reasons. One, I really love the movie because in the movie, Neo is the one. And I have this theory, like when my wife and I were little kids, we would walk down this, I actually live on the actual beach. I moved from the house you came to. I live on the actual beach now. My wife and I were in high school, we're dating and I would we'd walk on this beach called Victoria Beach in Laguna Beach. I said, babe, we'll get us a house someday. someday. We're gonna live there. She's like, you are? Yeah, and I'd go home and go, dad, who are these people living in these beach houses? How do you get one of them? And he's like, I don't I have no idea who these people are. So I had no idea how to get them. And as I got older, I figured it out. One thing I want to tell everybody here is that, you know, when you see a happy or successful family, either or, at some more point back in their lineage, they weren't. And then the one shows up. And that one changes freaking everything for that family. And Neo's the one in that movie. I'm the one in my family. I change the way my family thinks. I change the way the world treats us. I change the way we live. We're never going back again. I've changed it. The world does not have their thumb on my family ever again. We call the shots now, man. Right? And in every family, there's the one that eventually shows up. And they change the dynamic. They change the emotions. They change the In your family, you're, you're the one, right? And everyone listen to this. Even the fact you go, nah, I'm not the one. That probably makes you the one. But it's not because I wanted to. I fought for it. I fought to be the one in my family. We changed who we are in a world in one generation. My dad made the decision to get sober. And then I took it to the next level and we changed it. So I love that part of the matrix, the one. Because I believe in every family, the one eventually appears. The second part, though, is probably more important, which is that there's a part of your brain called the reticular activating system. There's there's what they call really bullet time in the movie where things slow down and you can begin to see things that you that were always there that you couldn't see before. The RAS is the filter. It's in the prefrontal cortex of your brain. It's the filter of your entire world. It scans in things that are only important to you so you don't go crazy. Otherwise, you'd be thinking about the blood rushing through your right ear, the people in the corner moving around. You'd be crazy. So it keeps you sane. So when something becomes unbelievably important to you, it filters in and slows things down for you. So I just telling your guys, I just bought a Tesla because I like what Musk is doing. Brother, everywhere I go now, I see Teslas. Huh. Red one. But babe, there's a white one. Hey, there's there's a plaid. There, three lanes over, other side of the freeway. I'm like, babe, black Tesla just drove by. She's like, how in the world are you seeing these cars? I don't see them. I says, babe, because they're important now. Here's the hook. Those Teslas were always there before. I never saw them because they weren't a part of my matrix. They weren't a part of the RAS. So the hook in life is really, really simple. It's like when you walk in a room, auditorially, it's really loud room. There's 300 people in there. Someone in a normal voice says, Sean, you hear that voice yep. because auditorily, your voice is important to you. So you hear, see, and feel things that are always there in your environment, but you were oblivious to before. The key in life is programming your matrix. The key is that the Teslas of your life become those meetings, those relationships, those thoughts, those decisions. And when you get it going, because you've had this too. You're like, my gosh, there's another one. There's another one. There's another one. You're like, this is, I'm vibing in a different way right now. And that's the difference, not in anything in your environment, anything in your life, completely different in the filter to which the world reviews itself to you. And that's your matrix. Yes. Yeah. The, the most powerful thing that you said there is that you get to choose it. You do. If you become aware. You become aware. Well, that's what it says. What's he say in the movie? Free your mind, Neo. Free your mind. And that's what everybody listening to this or watching this needs to understand. Free your mind. You can have all the tools in the world. Here's who I am in this space. There's brilliant dudes in this. I use practical things that are proven scientifically in your life that you can apply and understand pretty easily. And freeing your mind is the process of repeated visualizations of what it is that you want in your life because your mind moves towards what it's most familiar with. So if it's most familiar with your worries, your problems, your to-do list, you gravitate right into that. If it's familiar, I have a chapter in the book, I'll say this quickly, called 
become an impossibility thinker and a possibility achiever. Here's all that means, and I'll shut up. Most people at some point in their life begin to operate out of their history and their memory. That's their operating system in their brain. And so there might be different people, there might be different circumstances, but the emotions and the results are pretty much the same. They repeat history and memory over and over again. Rare people operate out of their imaginations and their dreams. That's their actual mindset in their life is they're imagining and dreaming the majority of the time. When you're a child, you're happier. Why? I believe because you were just with God more recently. And two, you're operating out of your imagination and your dreams because you have no history and memory. And then around 10, 11, 12 years old, we start to shift. By the time we're 20, 25, we're operating out of history and memory most of the times. Yeah. And what happens is societal impression on you, saying these dreams are illogical. Correct. They are far-fetched. Yep. You're not qualified. You're not capable. And you reinforce it with your choices and your behavior to where you actually believe you're right, that you're not qualified and you're not capable because yeah. that's what's being revealed to you. Yeah. There's this term that's very sticky called be realistic. Mm -hmm. You need to be more realistic. Mm -hmm. That's a dangerous term. Right. Unrealistic people rule the world. Yeah. yeah. Realistic people work for them. You know, this understanding with the RAS, with the reticular activating system, mm -hmm. it's, so, it's so powerful. And we also have the reticular cortex is kind of associated That's with right. this as well. And I like to think of it sort of like, you know, a heat-seeking missile Perfect. in some aspects, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So just kind of like, what are you targeting? Mm -hmm. But oftentimes we are, it's, it's going on automatic. And I know for most, most of my life, I didn't realize that I get to choose my perception. I get to choose what I see. I get to choose the thoughts that I think. Mm -hmm. They were just happening mm -hmm. and I was happening with it. Yep. And so I was so conditioned by my environment to look for problems. That's all I was looking for, but I didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. And we, again, when we're doing that, we, we can easily say, no, it's just my life is just like this. Correct. But And you'd be right. Yeah. One you'd of the things that I stress is like, and this is so simple, but mm -hmm. we just rarely do it. Mm -hmm. Take responsibility. <laughs> Very true. One hundred percent. Yeah. Without wiggle room, mm -hmm. because placing blame is just again, it's filtering, creating that filter. Yeah. Where you're looking for more stuff to blame. Yeah. Don't you feel like that's about as counterculture right now as it's ever been in time in any time in history? Never like this. Never. Like right. other people, your health, somebody else's responsibility. <laughs> your health, right? Right. We actually celebrate the the counter to that. Now, one thing I would advise everybody, I you know, I write about what is thinking in the book. Because if you're going to change your thoughts, you ought to actually analyze what is a thought. Mm -hmm. A thought is the process of asking and answering questions to yourself. So if you want to change your thinking, you need to change the main questions that you're asking yourself. And you have some regular questions you ask yourself. So, and some of them are programmed deep into you. God bless my dad. He stayed sober for 35 years, Sean. But maybe 25 million times my dad at the end of a conversation will say to me, hey, man, I love you. Be careful. Be careful. I'm 50 years old before my dad does. I'm worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Hey, love you. Be careful. I don't even know if he knew he was saying it, right? I'm like, what the mm. hell am I supposed to be so careful about? Mm. Right? What is this be careful thing? Well, if you heard that a bunch of times in your life, what that causes you to do to start asking your questions, like you just said, where's the threat? What do I need to be worried about? Who's out to get me? My big thing is worry. What am I worried about right now? I'll literally, if I don't have anything to be worried about, if I'm not taking control, my mind will just loop until I find something to be worried about. And most human beings are unaware of their unconscious questions they're asking themselves all the time. And these create thoughts and those thoughts create emotions and those emotions create behaviors. And then you reinforce them over and over again. So everyone says, change your thinking. How do I do that? You have to take control of the questions you ask yourself. And sometimes for me, it's as simple, honestly, as me saying to myself, what would I need to believe about this right now so that it would actually serve me? 
Let's even say you're right. Let's say that the deck stacked against you. Okay, fine. You could choose to believe that and you'll reinforce it. Or you could ask yourself the simple question. David Goggins and I were talking about this. He goes, sometimes I just ask myself, what would I need to believe about this so that I could actually work? Mm. And you change the question, you change the thought. Mm. So simple. Yeah, but people so don't do it and it's not pointed yeah. out to them. Yeah. So we call this your dominant question as Correct. well. So Primary what question. Is the, what is the thing that is oftentimes unconsciously replaying in your mind? Mm -hmm. So when I was dealing with my health issues when I was 20, mm -hmm. I was constantly asking why me? It's just on repeat. Why me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? Why won't somebody help me? Mm -hmm. And you're going to be filtering your internal and external environment to find things to affirm why you, right. why your life sucks, why your health sucks, why you're unhelpable, yep. right? And, but as you evolve, so number one, I changed my dominant question. Perfect. Which it happened in an instant. Mm -hmm. That's the thing about decisions too. It just took me time to get to that place. Yep. But I asked, what can I do to be the healthiest person in the world? That uh -huh. was the eventual question. Powerful question. Right? Crazy. Yep. It's crazy for yep. me to think that. Yep. But I, the first question was, what can I do to feel And you better? did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's more crazy. Yeah. So yeah. powerful. But I asked, what, what can I do to feel better? That was the mm -hmm. first question. Mm -hmm. And I just started to replay that. And mm -hmm. I didn't realize I was doing it, mm -hmm. but I just was looking for, to feel better. And I, feel, I felt like finally I stopped looking for somebody else to be responsible for my health. I love it. And I was just like, I, I can do something. I love right? it. I love it. And through that process, you know, it started to change my filter. Now I'm seeing things in my environment that were there the whole time. Yes. The certain books and people and resources and access to food and all these things that were there. This whole two years I'm suffering, so true. right? Because now I'm attuned to it. I love that. I yeah. love that. I call it your primary question and you call it your dominant question. Yeah. Yeah. Most people aren't aware they're asking that question. And I, by the way, we can regress. If I'm being transparent, about two years ago, because we have, I have one more emotions, one of the mm -hmm. chapters. So Dispenza talks about this too, but you have an emotional home, right? You have these five, six emotions you're going to get on a regular basis, no matter what the conditions are of your life. You find a way to get them. Even if you don't like them, you're familiar with them and you get them. So you could be have ecstasy, joy, peace, you know, prosperity, whatever they might be, love, or they could be worried, you know, frustration, anger, fear. And for me, most of mine were really healthy except one. And it was chaos. And I'm talking about like when I'm... 45, 46, 47 years old. And I'm like, I used to brag, I thrive in chaos. Man, I thrive in chaos. And I do. And the reason I do is I grew up the son of an alcoholic. There was chaos around me all the time. I learned to function in chaos when I was a little boy. And I found a way to get my chaos, even when I was 45 and worth hundreds of millions of dollars, married to my dream woman. I find a way to get chaos. And I finally was aware, does this emotion serve me? Now, one good thing about these things, thoughts, when we're aware of them, often they lose their power over us. So to some extent, I'm like, I'm doing the chaos thing again, aren't I? I'm stirring this stuff up to make another mess so I can fix it. Yeah. And so for me, mine was chaos. I didn't write a book because I'm perfect at these things. Some of the stuff I wrote in the book is actually for me to remind me, hey, man, these are things you still need to work on. Because there's this, there's this dude back there still that's that little insecure, bullied, son of an alcoholic, no self-confidence dude sitting there. And if I'm not careful, he'll show back up sometimes. And so I have to really work on what, is, what are the questions I'm asking myself? What are the thoughts? Because the last thing I'll say about that is it's not the events of our life that define us. We think they are, but they're not. It's the meaning we attach to the event. Yeah. And that meaning creates an emotion and that emotion creates more decisions. You and I left here right now. We went down to my car and we saw an accident on the street and God forbid we had to roll up and a family was killed in front of us. I mean, that's the most horrible thing I could probably witness, right? Probably for you too. That's the event. My meaning would be tragedy, sadness, God, what are you doing? Spiral into something negative. 
and then I'd behave a certain way. Mother Teresa was with us. Same event, honor of her lifetime. She literally said the honor of her lifetime was to be with somebody when their soul leaves their body and goes to heaven. Same exact event, attaches a totally different meaning. She would have joy and peace in that moment and a completely different existence for it. I use the most extreme example yeah. because the event shouldn't define you. It's the meaning you take from it. And that meaning is the question you ask yourself about what that event means. And when you do that and you take control of that, you take control of your life. Ah, oh, so powerful. Yeah. So powerful, Ed. Like the things that you're sharing, it's, it's all rooted back to one thing. We get to choose. Mm -hmm. And we're so powerful, but we just, oftentimes I think in our society today, we're not encouraged to embrace that power or even educated that it exists. Amen. Like we're just kind of at the mercy of, life's, of life happening instead of happening with life or you creating it. it. Yep. And this, I got another Wayne Dyer point here because you, you just mean. hit another button. When you mentioned these emotions that we revert back to, right? Mm -hmm. I remember him saying that when life squeezes you, it's, it's like an orange. Mm -hmm. When you squeeze an orange, what comes out is orange juice. Mm -hmm. When life squeezes you, what's mm -hmm. going to come out is what's already in there. I love it. It's your dominant emotions, right? And so there's this wonderful quote that says that you don't rise to the level of your expectation, you fall to the level of your training, oh, right? So, good. so what emotions have you cultivated and mm -hmm. trained because during this time when stuff shut down, angry people got angry. Mm -hmm. uh, depressed people got depressed. Optimistic people became optimistic. The list goes on and on. We're gonna fall to our dominant emotions. Brother, you're so on your game. So I, I wanna just concur. And one of the things, I, I say this in the book, I have a goal, goal setting chapter. You know what, you're probably gonna get about 20% of your goals, the truth is, but you'll get 100% of your standards long-term. You're always gonna eventually get your standard. That's why standards matter. That's why the standard of, if I don't, Listen, if you have no self-confidence, we already know why you don't. You don't keep the promises you make to yourself. You have a reputation, relationship with you where you don't trust you. If you want to build baseline confidence, you want to become a functioning, really successful person, start keeping the promises you make to yourself. If you want to be superhuman, keep the promises you make to yourself plus one more. I'm going to do 10 reps in the gym. Nope, I do 10 plus one more. I'm going to text 10 of my friends today or make 10 business contacts. Nope, I do 10 plus one more. I'm going to tell my daughter I love her. Nope, I'm going to tell her I love her plus one more time. And so when you start to add a standard that's higher than just what you've committed to doing, now you've transformed yourself. So that's a huge, huge thing. But in terms of goals, this is what blows my mind. We keep setting goals for the things we want or the achievements we want to have. I want the million dollars. I want the six-pack abs. I want the dream relationship. So we go after stuff and things and achievements and benchmarks. What's ironic about it is no one ever takes an inventory of what their emotional goals are. Because the truth is, you don't want the jet or the six-pack abs. You want how you think those will make you feel. You don't want the dream relationship. You want how you think it'll make you feel. So why not start out intentionally with what you want to feel, what the emotions are? Like for me, this year is all about peace. This year is all about joy and peace and laughter. And I'm intentional about my goals to get them. Here's what I think. If I can get all the peace and all the joy and all the laughter that I'm seeking, the physical goals will take care of themselves. But when I'm after the physical all of the time, I'm going to hit very few of them. And sometimes when you get there, they don't deliver on the emotion you think they're going to give you very long because of this emotional repetitive pattern you have. Mm. So start to get intentional about what's the emotions you want to feel. Wow. This leads into another chapter, which is, and you touched on this a little bit, but one more try. Yeah. I want to dig into this a little bit more mm -hmm. because it's right there. Yes. And that can be the one. 
It can be the one is the try. Here's what I think. I have a chapter in the book on this. And as you said, I went to this, this is what it hit, where it hit me. One, my dad had one more try to get sober and it changed everything. And I've had a bunch of business times in my life where, you know, when my dad was saying, hey, I'm only going to get sober, stay sober one more day. I've almost quit so many times in different businesses I have. And the notion that I have to decide to not to quit forever is daunting. And many times I wasn't up to that commitment. I'm nah, I'm going to not quit forever. But many times I went, I'm just not going to quit for one more day. I'm going to give it one more try. I've had lots of those in my life. In fact, when my wife and I were engaged, there was a couple of times where I'm like, I'm going to give this one more try. And thank God that I did. But if you ask me in those moments when they were really bad, are you committed to the next 90 years? <laughs> I've been like, no, but because I gave it one more try, now I'm committed to the rest of my life, right? And so my daughter uh, went and got a job on this, but I went to a five-year-old's birthday party maybe like four years ago. This is what people don't give themselves why they quit. They had a pinata. The pinata is the ultimate metaphor for life now for me. So there's like 10 five-year-olds. And the first kid gets up, the birthday boy just whacks the crap out of this pinata like 60 times. No candy comes out. He finally goes, I quit. Next kid gets up, beats the crap out of it. Really big kid. No candy comes out. What they didn't know is they were doing something called compound pounding, which is invisible progress. You can't see it. But they were breaking that pinata down, but none of them knew it. Compound pounding, invisible progress. Next kid gets up. He hits it. He quits. So about six of these kids get up. They all quit. They're all over on the monkey bars. The last little dude gets up there, glasses on, skinny little kid. He didn't even want to swing the bat. You know, he was afraid. He takes one swing, Sean, thunk, barely hits it. Bam, all the candy comes out. And then all the kids jump on and celebrate. The question you have to ask yourself is, was it the last kid's final shot that broke that pinata open? Or was it the cumulative blows over time that did it? We all know the answer. It was the accumulation of the compound pounding that broke it open. Here's the thing in life, and I've watched this over, man, over and over again. Most people quit before the candy comes out of everything in their life. They don't give themselves credit for invisible compound progress. They just don't do it. And so they quit before the candy comes out of their relationship. The candy comes out of their business. The candy comes out of their physiology and their fitness and their energy level. They're so damn close, and they quit right before they're there because there's no external evidence of the progress. Life is a lot like yeah. this pinata. And I've just learned in my life to give myself credit for progress that's invisible because I know yeah. one more, one more, one more, one more has to be making progress even if I can't see it. Yeah, that's faith. That's right. As well. It's which faith. Which is a principle. Again, I love that you mentioned people having faith when they're in this certain environment, mm -hmm. when they're in church or they're at this Sunday mm -hmm. school, but then the faith just dissipates. They dump, they dump right? them. Right. What so kind of faith is that? Yeah. It's, right. so, it's so remarkable how you know we say we have faith, but when it really matters... It's completely foreign to us. It is. You know, yeah. so that's really remarkable. And with this, and I, I want to make sure that we have time for this because okay. time is the, is yeah. the key to this particular part. <laughs> mm -hmm. You've accomplished so much. Thank you. You have so much that you are uh, investing your time and your energy into today. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, of course, it's evolved over time. Mm -hmm. But family is important to you. Yes. And, you know, I've seen you, you know, pictures with your son, the golf course and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But... Being able to structure your time and accomplish what you're accomplishing mm -hmm. with the time constraints today, there's never been more, you know, opportunity, access, problems as well. That's right. You have a chapter where you're addressing this. It's one more and the five principles of time management. Yeah, this is the first time I've ever shown people how I manage time. If you went to the two things probably that have been the most important in my life, it would be the one mores, 
my matrix, how I've programmed it, and this, and for me. And so here's what's the dumbest thing in the history of mankind that currently exists. 24-hour days. It's the most ridiculous, antiquated, insane concept on earth currently. That we still measure time the same way they did 300 years ago. 300 years ago, there wasn't any electricity. There wasn't any cars. There wasn't any internet. There wasn't any Google. There weren't any smartphones. And we're going to measure time the same way that dude did? That's really stupid. That's like ridiculous that no one's brought this up to you before. So like about 25 years ago, I'm literally sitting around. I've gone to this time management course that Tony Robinson did. And I love Tony. He's a great friend, but it didn't help me. And I'm like, okay, I don't need to do lists and what's urgent and what's important. Like, I got all these strategies. That's great. Okay. It's the actual concept of time that's killing me here. And so we've all had these mornings where we go, I got more done this morning, man, than I've got done in three weeks. Well, why can't you do that every morning? Why can't you bend and manipulate time to serve you? And so I changed the way I manage time. So I have a day. My day is not 24 hours. My day is from 6 a.m. to noon. That's day one, every single day. That's day one. And in that time, some days I just screw off. Some days I screw off, right? So you could have a normal 24-hour screw-off day. I have a six-hour screw-off day. So 6 a.m. to noon is a day. In that day, I'm going to get the type of fitness, business context, meetings, money, relationships, faith, whatever it is, 6 a.m. to noon. At the end of that day, a clock goes off, just like it does for most people at the end of the day. And I go, what did I get done today? And it's automatic for me now because it's reflexive. What did I just get done? What didn't I do? What do I need to double my efforts on? What do I need to go make up for? What did I miss? And then the next day starts, noon to 6 p.m. Amount of context, business, relationship, fitness, nutrition, faith, whatever it might be in that day that I would get done in 24 hours, I shrink the time frame. I compress the time frame. I squeeze all the air out of my life and bam, I've got another day. And then I have my next day is from 6 p.m. to midnight. Some of that sleep, some of it's rest, some of it's recovery. And then obviously the one in between, I don't even count as a day. I get three days in a day. So I get 21 days a week. Now you stack up the fact that I get 21 days a week and you get seven. I'm going to kick your ass right? I'm going to be happier, more productive, more successful, more fulfilled. Stack that up over a month, six months, three years, seven years, 25 years. Life's totally different. You can take an average ordinary man like me, which is what I am, and they can produce superhuman extraordinary results when you combine this with the other things that are in the book. What'll happen the first time you do it, you'd be like, eh, you give me three or four weeks of doing this, and you're going to wake up and go, oh my gosh, man, this is completely different. I cannot believe how long I was measuring time in a given day. What used to take me time to go do a project in high school, to go to the uh, library and research an encyclopedia, my daughter can literally get the information in in six seconds. But we're going to both have 24-hour days? When you wanted to mail me something 100 years ago, you'd have to handwrite it, stick it on some horse's ass. They'd write it to me. I may or may not ever get it. And then a month and a half later, you'd get my response. Now you can text me and I'm back to you within 16 seconds. But we both have 24-hour days. This is what people, and even as I say this, yeah. people aren't getting it because the kicker isn't even any of that. The kicker is what is rare and scarce is more valuable, period. That's why diamonds are worth more than paper. When your time becomes more rare and precious, the rest of the world begins to respond to you differently and you become more valuable instantly when you bend and manipulate time this way. All of a sudden, sales I didn't get back in the day, I started getting. I started to vibrate at a different frequency. My energy was different. My cadence was different. My mindset was totally different. And never mind all the extra one mores I'm doing. It's the way you respond to me when I bend and manipulate time this way. That is the single thing I've had thousands more days in my life than I was actually given. So people go, Jesse Itzler and I talk about this all the time. He goes, hey, man, how much time do you think you have left in life? I'm like, I don't know, 30 years left. And he goes, yeah, well, man, that's like a thousand more days. I go, no, 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 bro. It's like 3,000 more days. I'm getting more days out of my life 
in the same amount of time, you're getting fewer days. This is the whole concept. In two or three months of doing this, you will write me and email me and DM me on Instagram and go, my God, I cannot believe how different my life is. Ooh, I'm feeling, I don't know if it's because I'm hungry, but I'm feeling this <laughs> You're fire You're in hungry. my belly. Man, this is so powerful, Ed. Thank you. So powerful. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. If you want a surefire way to damage your microbiome, then look no further than that dirty S word, sugar. Data publishing advances in nutrition uncovered that excess sugar creates a clear pro-inflammatory environment in our gut. There's even recent data published by scientists at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center showing that mice who were fed diets high in sugar developed worse colitis. This pro-inflammatory, very, very detrimental inflammatory bowel disease. And the researchers examined their large intestine and found that more of the bacteria that can damage the gut's protective mucus layer was driven by the increase in sugar consumption. Another study cited in Science Translational Medicine describes how sugar is likely making negative alterations to our gut bacteria. Again, having healthy, robust amounts of probiotic-friendly flora controlling our system and keeping in check the opportunistic pathogenic bacteria is key for all manner of health and wellness, from helping to reduce our risk of diabetes and obesity to reducing our risk of autoimmune conditions. As it stands right now, the average American consumes about 100 pounds of sugar annually, mostly in the form of added sugars. But what can we do to pivot from this? In fact, there's a sweetener that not only doesn't damage our gut health, it actually improves it. A recent study published in Food Quality and Safety found that in addition to having natural antibacterial effects against pathogenic bacteria, raw honey is able to improve overall gut microbial balance. How sweet it is when we're talking about the benefits of honey, long renowned for its antimicrobial impact. We're talking about the external applications, but it has these internal applications as well. But the key here is making sure that your honey is not coming along with pesticides and heavy metals and all these other things that are common in bee products today. We wanna make sure that we're dedicated to sustainable beekeeping as well. And this is why my honey that I utilize that's in my cabinet right now is bee-powered superfood honey from Beekeepers Naturals. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. And you get 25% off, taken off automatically at checkout. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model for 25% off. They do third-party testing for over 70 plus pesticide residues for heavy metals and negative bacteria like E. coli and salmonella to make sure that you're not getting any nefarious things along with your healing, delicious superfood honey. Again, go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model for 25% off. Now back to the show. So what I'm really hearing is this is time management. Just the concept of it is antiquated. It right? is. This is more self-management. Self-management and time manipulation. Yes. Yes. It's time manipulation. You're bending and compressing it and you're not conforming. We're talking about all these things that we conform to the collective psychology of the world the victim psychology. If you conform to the 24 hour day, you'll be like everybody else. And I'm just proof of it. Like, look, there's just, I wrote a book. I wrote the book for this reason. I call it the ultimate guide to happiness and success. This is what I know of how I became happier and successful. It's like, it's real stuff. So if you just did that alone, 
your life would change. If you just change your identity, your life would change. If you just learn to build your confidence differently, your life would change. If you just do the leadership things I have in the book, your life would change. But if you do a lot of them, I'm just telling you, you can change the world. You can change your world and other people's worlds in a way that you cannot even possibly imagine. But the time one, huge for me. Yeah. yeah. Huge. As you know, so much of our lives are dictated by our emotions and our states. Yeah. And our emotions can drive our activities, but our activities can also drive our emotions. Agreed. And what if we can get those things in alignment? Mm -hmm. And so one of your other chapters is one more emotion. Yep. And I thought that that was really important. And it's not talked about enough. Yeah. You know, we, we tend to bypass that and try to do the stuff. We try to do the stuff. And so for me, it's like, when, you, when you're holding your dad's hand when he dies, which is what I was doing, you have a different perspective on life because I physically watched one end for the first time in my life. And I thought about my dad. My dad is a collection of his experiences and the difference that he made. But the totality of my father's life was his emotions. That's who you are, are your emotions. Yet we never look in on them. We, when we, the other thing we think, brothers, like, well, there's negative and positive emotions. I make, the, I make the contention in the book that that's not true, that all emotions are okay. It's the abundance of them and the amount of them. A life with no fear, fear causes you to focus. Fear causes you to prepare. So some fear is healthy. Living in it constantly, really, really negative thing, right? No anxiety, no worries. I don't know. I think some of that stuff's caused me to work my tail off. Do I want to live with it every day? No. And so I'm looking for that one more emotion. And for me, in my life, I know what it is that I want more of. And I've said it earlier, I want more peace. Now, for me, I will say this is why I love you. One of the ways I've been able to change my state and change my emotions is how I move my body. The quickest fix for me on changing my emotions is to change my physiology, is to work out, is to walk, is to make love, is to laugh. These are things that quickly change my emotions because the same physiology is required in all of them. So I know you're an expert on this as well, but this is why your show matters so much to me because it's very difficult if you're not moving your body and using it in an elegant and beautiful way to the best of your ability that you can generate the emotions on a regular basis that you want. Stagnation and a lack of health makes it very difficult to feel bliss and peace when you're not moving your body. So when people ask me, so what's a change agent for you emotionally? Move my body. I'll take a walk. I'll take a run. I'll do a workout. I'll do jumping jacks in my office if I have to, but I'm going to change my physiology that oftentimes changes my emotions and my state. Have you noticed in the last, we'll say last 10 years, an increase in people who are high performers in business really taking their health more seriously? Yes. And there's, this sounds funny. I actually take one millionth of 1% of credit for that. Because way back in the day, maybe like 30 years ago, I was one of the first people to say, I'm a business athlete. I consider myself an athlete. I'm training like an athlete. You look nowadays like LeBron James trains like a businessman, but he's also an athlete. Jay-Z, you know, I'm a businessman. I'm a businessman, right? Like he's a business person. I was one of the really a long time ago. It wasn't popular. I was in gyms. As an gyms were popular. But business people in gyms wasn't really, really popular. I train like I'm an athlete. I think like I'm an athlete. I want to have the longevity of an athlete in my life. Now, my training's changed. I'm a little bit more delicate with my body, so to speak. I do more stretching and more yoga than I used to. I think the way you train is also a metaphor for your life. And I'll just be candid with you. I've trained heavy, hard, and dispensed violence and justice in the gym. I was a much bigger dude when you and I first met. And I think a little bit of that is a metaphor for how I treat myself. And so to some extent, I've altered my training where I still lift and I still train, 
but I do things that care for myself too. I do more stretching. I'm more hydrated than I was before. I do more yoga. I'm doing things that uh, care for my body as well. And somehow, by the way I care for my body, I tend to emotionally care for myself better also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so powerful. You know, I've seen this trend, of course, picking up. And I just did a talk for ESPN. Okay. And shout out to those guys that are listening right now. But they see themselves as a very similar term, mm -hmm. corporate athletes, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're putting forward the greatest physical examples of performance, of beauty, of connection mm -hmm. in the world, right? But behind the scenes, they could be in a van for 24 hours, right? Yeah. So they've got to find a way to be in alignment with the, what they're showing. Mm -hmm. And they have that, like this thing turn on in certain people who are in positions of power. Right, I love because that. ultimately, with so much of this, and everybody listening too, we said this before we got started. Oftentimes, our problems are just a conversation away, right? Yes. And so, somebody in the business stepping into Nestle Foods or whatever the case might be, with a different mindset, yes, who's just like, we need to cultivate health mm -hmm. instead of poisoning the public or whatever. I love that, you know. And so, I love that. having that kind of corporate athlete mentality, mm. and also finding ways to stack conditions and understanding that your health is a major driver of your performance. And this is one of the things I, I'm seeing today too, Ed, with all the divisiveness that's, that's mm -hmm. present, it's largely a function of our state of health as well. Mm. Because it's very difficult. It's not impossible for me to have compassion and for me to perspective take and to have mm -hmm. patience with mm -hmm. you and to see your point of view when I'm not well. Mm. It's, but it's harder. I agree. It's significantly harder. And so we're making it harder on ourselves to be human when we're so unwell. And right, as you know, we're in epidemic states of oh. mental health issues, obesity, obesity. heart disease, yep. you name it, everything is skyrocketed. Yes. And that's getting ignored all the while we're saying we need to come together and I'm, behave or whatever. You're so right. I, I, I could not agree with what you just said more. I totally agree with you. It's a, it's a re really complex situation, but it's also the, the beauty and the, the gratitude that I have for you sitting here right now is you keep bringing forth the simplicity of these things mm -hmm. with what would seem to be miraculous results. Right. These are very simple principles, but you're putting it together in a formula for us. Right, well, it's same, well, you do the exact same thing. I told you that on my show. The enemy of execution is complexity. The more complex something is, and by the way, some people would like things to be complicated because that then gives them an out from doing it. So I'm taking <laughs> your excuse away. I'm giving yeah. you very simple things that are in depth will help you. And so I'm taking away your excuse that it's too complicated or you don't understand it. I love having brilliant people on my show. I really do enjoy that. But sometimes I almost feel like they give people the excuse if they can't understand everything they're saying to not take action. I'm taking that excuse away because I'm if my IQ is as high as yours listening, I'm really lucky because I'm the fourth in my own family. We just did it again for the fourth time. I have a wife and two kids. I am the fourth highest IQ of the four of us in my own house. So I'm sure of all of your guests, I don't ring very high either. And I don't have any need to do that. I just want to help people. Mm -hmm. So crazy, man. So, man, I just love talking with you. I love you. You know, just so there are two things I have to ask you about because certain words are just attractive to me. Mm. Multiplier is attractive to me. Yep. And you've got one more multiplier in the book. One more multiplier, something, someone or you when added to something doesn't just do plus one, but it's like plus 10. They multiply things. And so one of the examples I use in the book, like if you're a leader in business or a leader in a family, when I add you to the environment, you multiply things. And there's all different things you can do in your life to be a multiplier as well. But multipliers attract winning. They attract success. They attract abundance. And so in the book, I used Brady. Tom Brady is one of the examples. And 
you know, when he got traded or when he signed with the Bucks, it wasn't just that Brady got added to that team and changed their culture, but he really changed with their standards. Like we talked about earlier, he completely changed the standard of what's acceptable for work, preparation, execution. But the other thing he did is he was a multiplier. All of a sudden, Rob Ronkowski signs, Leonard Fournette signs, Antonio Brown signs, right? Guys want to come play with a multiplier. Guys want to be in an organization with a multiplier. In every organization, there's a multiplier. John Maxwell kind of has something similar where he calls it the law of the catalyst. But this is the person everybody chases. Here's what a multiplier is. And you can be one. In life, especially like in your own family, most things with your kids or you are caught, not taught. You catch them. Multipliers, just by being around them, a lot's caught. They don't have to teach. They're caught. And in life, there's four types of people. There's the unmotivated. They're hard to help. We're trying right now, you and I are. Then there's the motivated. Motivated people are moved by their motives, which is fine. I want to get healthier. I want to make more money. I want a jet. I want a house. I want a relationship. They're moved by motive. Nothing wrong with that at all. It's very healthy. There's a level past it, though, called inspirational. Inspirational people or people that are inspired, the root of that is to be in spirit. There's an energy. There's an elevation. There's a contribution. There's a difference that's made by inspirational people. The fourth type's the most rare. You are one of these. These are aspirational people. Aspirational people are people that we aspire to emulate. We aspire to be more like them. If you're going to be a multiplier, you will elevate yourself from motivated to inspired, which are beautiful states, and you'll still stay in them sometimes, to aspirational, where just be by being around you, I catch things from you in your proximity, and I aspire to be like you. I aspire to behave like you. Aspirational people are what we need more of in the world, way more of in the world. It's remarkable. I, I don't want to not talk about this mm. because you, you said it and you were, you know, you were going through certain points. Mm. But when you said that along comes a, the one in a family, yeah. mm -hmm. I really, I didn't want to say that. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I didn't, I didn't ask for that. Like, I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't sign up to be that. I, mm -hmm. I don't have to be that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm okay with somebody else being the one. Me too. Right? Mm -hmm. But I am the one. I know. You know, I know you are. Doesn't that feel good though? It's, you know, it's, it feels like not a very humble thing to say, but it's an yeah. absolute truth. Yeah. I, Why though? Why do you think? Because people ask me all the time, what emotion do we need more of in the world? Like what could really change things? And I know this sounds super hokey. I'll probably get, I can't even say it without getting emotional. Like I would just love to see there be more love in the world. Just love. Like you love your family so deeply that it exudes out of you that you had to become the one, right? What we need in our culture more is love. When people are hurting one another, when they're operating out of anger, they're afraid. Anger is fear manifested in action. That's what anger is. It's a fear. And they're afraid because there's not enough love in the world. And I know that sounds weird from two, you know, fit dudes sitting in a room talking about life and stuff. <laughs> but like, you're the yeah. one because you love so deeply. You're the one because you love the people that are listening to this so deeply. And you want to make a difference for people. Watch how you interact with the guys that are here. You love them, man. You just love people. And, and most people, I think, somehow think showing love to people is some kind of a weakness or a fragility in life. And I don't believe that that's true. The people that I admire the most are the most loving. You can love in a lot of ways. Jesus loved the apostles. He still rebuked them from time to time, right? It's okay to rebuke and correct people. But the reason you're the one is you love. Because you love, you'll fight for that family. Yeah. You do whatever you can. You've moved out here. The timing was really interesting. You had to get resourceful. You just yeah. find a way. The one just finds a way. They just will it to happen. They're just resourceful. They just get it done. They just compete. They just... 
They've got a will to win that cannot be bought. Most people in life will sell their family up the river at some point. Yeah. It doesn't sound that way, but they'll do it. Their will to win is for sale. With enough heat, enough rejection, enough losing, they will sell their win. And at some point, they may not say, but they put their hands up. I, okay, I surrender. I'm just not going to try anymore. I'm just, look, man, I'm going to look like I'm trying. I'm going through the motions, man. I'm going through the motions. Where we're at's okay. Driving yesterday to a meeting, I'll share this with you. This is why I love you. And I mean that I do. Like, everyone, I love you, brother. I love you. And I love you because I know things about you that I shouldn't know because I haven't been around you that much to know the things that I know about you. And they're this. This lady friend of mine was saying to me, she goes, I just love what you've done with your children because you grew up in that alcoholic home and you were neglected. And I was neglected too because my parents were divorced and my parents neglected me. And she goes, I just, I don't neglect my children. She's a very good friend of mine. And I said, I think you should rethink whether you're neglecting your children. I've known you 30 years. You're magnificent. You're not living up to your potential. You're not chasing your dreams. I said, the most insidious form of child neglect in the world is a parent who's not pursuing their potential and their dreams. You are neglecting that child when you do that. You're installing them a belief system that it's okay to settle. It's okay to be average and ordinary. You're actually telling them from your average and ordinary existence that that's who they are. That's where they come from. And I said, she goes, well, what do I do to change it? I said, I want you to focus on how much you love them. When you give yourself the gift of how much you love them, you're never going to settle again. The thing I admire the most about you, Sean, is you love your family and you love them. It's, it's special the way you love your family, the way you talk about them, the way you post about them, the way your face changes when you talk about them. That's why you're the one. It's very clear to me. You're brilliant. You work your butt off. It's the combination of all those gifts, but it's really from this place of, man, I love my family. I am not going to, you even said it to yourself this way. I will never neglect them. I will never neglect them with my effort. Yeah, okay, I'm not the alcoholic. That isn't good enough not to be an alcoholic. It's not good enough just to put a roof over their heads. I love them enough that I'm never going to neglect them with them not seeing me chase my potential, with them not seeing me try again, with them not seeing me do one more, one more try, one more rep, one more podcast, one more effort, one more meeting. My family will never see me neglect them. That's why I love you and admire and respect you. And everybody listening to this, it is perfectly okay if previously you've not done this. My dad lived crappy the first 15 years of my life, not a great life. And then magnificently the last 35 years and became my favorite man that's ever walked the earth, right? As a human is my dad. So you can flip this right now, but you got to stop neglecting your family. You got to get after it. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. To, to circle back on why I'm a good listener mm -hmm. is I'm a fan. I'm a fan of people. As I'm sitting here, I, I wish that other people could be sitting right here in this space with you, witnessing mm. this excellence and this heart, you know? And so you. I'm a fan. And if we can cultivate that, of being a fan of, of excellence and of, of humans and of mm. love, mm. man, like we can create some change there too. So, Amen. but there's one other thing that I got to talk to you about. Okay. And this is coupled with, you just mentioned my move here and the interesting mm. timing, yeah. right? So it definitely was a curveball yeah. to come out to LA. So. I haven't really detailed this for, for, for the audience, for Model Health Nation, our family out there, but I moved here in July of 2019. And <laughs> <laughs> the entire time from, even we, stayed, we had to stay at an Airbnb mm -hmm. for a week when we first got here, I, I was working on my book every day mm. at that point. Mm. The only time I took off, even we had to stay at a hotel for two days in St. Louis before we moved here. I was working on the book in the hotel room. Mm -hmm. And 
the only time I took off was on the flight. I was, I'm just going to sit back, watch mm -hmm. a movie, whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I was working on the book, researching, writing mm -hmm. six days a week. Mm -hmm. And I turned it in December 31st, 2019. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a few hours before midnight. And I'm just like, Damn. all right, I'm going to focus on me now. I love because it. a little fun fact to put in your back pocket for everybody who feels that they have a book in them, mm -hmm. it is not healthy writing a health book. Right? There's no <laughs> way around it. Like. And I learned from writing Sleep Smarter, like this time I'm going to put a timer, I'm going to go for more walks. I did those things, but it's just so incredibly abnormal, especially a research heavy book like I have yeah. to be at the computer that amount of hours. It doesn't matter if you're standing, mm. it's still sedentary mm. and you're still in this universe mm. disconnected from the world around you, right? Yeah. And I was in love, man. Like I, I couldn't wait to get to the computer because I just had ideas popping up. Oh, kept coming. Right. And it created something very special. It was very, very special. special. Agreed. And so- Two days after turning the book in, because I took a day off, right? I took yeah. a day off and I hit the gym and I got injured. Mm. I was out of alignment, mm. you know, because I was, I was healing a shoulder injury, which being a typical guy was just like, kept going to the gym, but now I'm doing physical therapy, but I was sleeping on one other side of my body okay. and I had a pelvic tilt and it led to another injury. Mm. Story that we'll do a masterclass on because there's so much to it. Bottom line is the next, three months, I'm doing physical therapy. Mm. And then I start to get better. I could walk a little bit. I start to stand up when we're recording again. Yeah. And then hello, C word. Yeah. All right. The big C word mm. shows up on the scene and I haven't shared this with you or anybody, but Grant Cardone was coming in to see me okay. when I first got injured. Okay. Right. And I had this opportunity, that opportunity, this incredible speaking event, all these things were showing up and I, I couldn't do none of it. It seemed like I'm in LA now and the world is just passing me by. Mm. And then suddenly every single person joined me in that quarantine, right? Mm. But I had already been mm. kind of cultivating to be able to handle it, right? Yeah. And so coming here at this time was actually, for me, the biggest blessing mm. because I got to see through this entire process. I'm kind of in one of the places really ground zero yeah. for expressions of logic and Very expressions of, of, of integration or health mandates or, you know, or, of solutions or lack thereof and all mm. the stuff. Like I can go out my door, You're right. even up until about a month ago right. and people are walking outside with, the, with an N95 on. Just happened when I got in my car today. See, you see yes. what I'm saying? Like, yes. so we're here in this situation. So I got to see it firsthand where I would have been insulated if I was in Missouri mm -hmm. and my house yeah. in Wildwood, right? Yeah. So I got to see mm -hmm. and be a part of it. And I'm mm -hmm. so grateful for that because it helped me to show up in another way because I got to see it. There's a difference between being aware of something and seeing glimpses of it to being in the room with it, mm, you know? Yeah. And so, but this brings us to this chapter, one more inconvenience. Well, yeah, this is the bottom line. So you gotta be willing to do inconvenient things in your life. And our natural human tendency is to avoid the inconvenient, is to do the easy thing. And on the other side, like I said, here's what has to happen. You have to change your relationship with pain. I had Phil Heath on my show, seven-time Mr. Olympia. In the middle of the interview, I go, I feel like, oh, you know why you're so great, right? He goes, I think. I said, your relationship with pain is completely different than most human beings. You pursue it because you're in a career, in a business where you know that if you don't actually go through pain, you're going to lose. And so you do inconvenient things every single day. And he goes, you know what's crazy, man? I love leg day, which is the hardest day in that damn gym. I'm Mr. Olympia because I crush leg days. And most of these guys, they wing it a little bit on leg days. And everything in my life has come through me pursuing the inconvenient. Because 
it's where all your resiliency is done. We have a culture now that really does not embrace doing hard and difficult things. And in any given day, if you'll do the inconvenient thing, you'll do the most productive thing and you'll change you because that's where that temporary pain is in life. And if you don't do the inconvenient, I'm going to tell you what happens to you in your life. If you want to know the power of one more in your life, it's when I take it from you. And everything becomes convenient. My dad had cancer, man, for eight years. It's an inconvenient thing, to put it mildly. Watch my dad go through chemo, radiation, proton therapy, surgery, chemo, proton, radiation, surgery, surgery, proton, radiation, chemo, new chemo, experimental chemo. When my dad first got sick, he said to me, I'm only doing this once. And that's it. And if it doesn't work, just let me go. And then he kept doing it. And I'm like, Dad, why are you willing to do this inconvenient thing over and over? Which I knew wasn't working and encouraged him not to do, by the way. He said, man, if I could just get to one more high school graduation for my grandkids, maybe I'll make one more wedding. Maybe I'll get one more basketball game. And those one mores, man, when they're gone from me, I'll never get them again. So I'm willing to do the inconvenient to get the one more. And that's really what the book's about. And then I'll tell you this. What if I took your one more from you? Now you know how precious the opportunity to do one more is. My favorite thing, Sean, and we both suck, but was to play golf with my dad. My favorite thing. Not because either one of us could play, but because, and my dad was a simple dude. I used to say, hey, dad, you know, I've had five jets. My dad could walk to where my jets were parked, Sean. He's never been on one. I go, dad, let's go to Maui and play golf. And he goes, why would I go to Maui to play with my son? We could play in Chino. It's just playing about my son. I don't care where we are. It's a simple man. But man, for those five hours, I'm sitting with my dude. Just talking about life. We disagreed on politics, you know, spirituality. For him to walk across the green one more time, my dad, you know, maybe make a putt. Go, dad, good putt. Yeah, that was a good one, huh, Eddie? You know what I would give for one more round of golf with him? One more conversation with my dad. Only do we understand the power of what one more is when it's gone. What if I told you you only had one more conversation with your children? How much different would that talk be tonight? One more dance with your sweetie. What if this was the last podcast? One more podcast. The next book, one more book. You begin to understand how precious things are when you only have one more of them or you don't have any at all. And so I would just encourage everybody to begin to look at your family like, you know, when my dad was sick, before he was sick, phone would ring, I get in a meeting, I'll get back to him. After he was sick, hang on, man, it's my dad, no matter where I was. Dad, it changes. And so I would just encourage everybody, before the one mores are gone, take advantage of them because they're going to be gone. And what occurred to me, man, when my dad was passing was, I'm going to die someday. I'm next. I don't know if that's in five minutes or 50 years, but I know what I want my life to be when I'm gone. I know what I want the memories to be, the emotions, the contribution I want. I know what I want my life to look like. To me, I've told you this before. When I go to heaven, to me, heaven is, I want the Lord to go well done, good and faithful servant. But I think heaven is that you actually meet the person you were capable of becoming. I think you get introduced to the Sean that you could have been, the so-and-so you could have been. All the dreams, all the memories, all the moments, all the emotions, all the contributions of your life. You're going to meet that man. And to me, if you meet that man and you're identical twins, that's heaven. And if you meet that man and you're complete strangers, that's hell. And I want to be in heaven. And so I'm doing all the one mores in my life so that I get to heaven someday. <laughs> I don't know if it got real heavy there at the end, but I feel that stuff really strongly. Ed, thank you so much for being you. 
you know, you are truly, you're the one, you know, you're truly an exceptional human being. And, you know, I love people that just walk their talk mm. and you give so much. And it's just, it's such a, it's such an experience. You're such a light Thank on you. this planet. So are you. That we need right now. So are you. So, and I'm grateful that I'm alive right now to bear witness to it. Oh, you know, it's, it's really remarkable. So thank you. The power of one more as of this recording is available right now. Just dropped. Yep. Get your copy, get a copy for Please. your, your significant other family member, get a copy for your office. Yeah. Where can people pick up the book? Everywhere books are sold, obviously. And then, uh, if you go to the power of one more.com, there's some cool tools that enhance the book, you know, extra stuff that's not in the book there too. So it'll help you. You should get it. The legend, the living legend, Ed Milet. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. I love you. Thanks for having me. Love you too, brother. All right. Ed Milet, everybody. Just one more. One more rep. One more relationship. One more connection. One more try. One more opportunity. One more shift in our perspective. That's how close we are from having a dramatically different outcome in our success, in our relationships, in our health. The list goes on and on and on. It's really about our perspective. It's about our perception with this very powerful principle. We don't often know that it's that one more. It's just that one more. And I can tell you over the years, I've seen so many people come and go in this, in this space that I'm in. You know, when I started the Model Health Show nine years ago, there were a lot of other people tickling the ivories with podcasts at the top. They were tiptoeing around the top of the charts. And there wasn't anybody at the time that really looked like me. He was even showing up on the iTunes charts back then. And there were so many other people who were in the space. But over time, many of them have gradually fallen away. They stopped. They didn't realize how close they were to making that impact that they started off pursuing. You know, the same thing with writing books. There's no way I would have had an international bestseller or my most recent book, Eat Smarter, becoming a USA Today national bestseller, top 10 audiobook, all the things, if I didn't decide one more. After my first book, which I literally was printing out copies myself, all right, I was teaching nutrition classes, printing it out, I got these little binders, and I was selling what I called a book. And now I even say that with the caveat, you know, to myself now, but back then that was my book. And that book, if I really respected the process, was helping to qualify me for the work that was to come. But I could have stopped after that book. But then I had the next progression, which was self-publishing a book that I put together, paying to get it designed, professional editors, all the things. But I have to buy my copies of the book. And I got this pallet of books sent to my house, as in my garage, that I now needed to get out to the world. And that book didn't make the impact or do the things that I thought it would do upon the creation of the thing, right? But the thing that was happening was it was qualifying me to be able to articulate ideas, to be able to construct stories and sentence structure and to create a cohesiveness and an attractiveness in the writing style and all these other things that it was qualifying me for when I do the one more. And that one more was just knocking on the door. But again, what happens, we hinder ourselves. We don't realize that it could just, it's the next thing. Just go to the next thing. Just try one more, one more day, one more yes, one more no, in some instances, is going to be the path forward. And so this conversation today blew me away. Like I was sitting back 
watching Ed speak in awe myself. And because he's got the track record to prove these things. Not only that, we see it consistently in our own lives when we do these things, right? And so what it really boils down to is these simple principles, just one more. And I highly recommend you pick up a copy of The Power of One More today and add this to your library, add this to your mental tapestry, your mental Rolodex, your mental algorithm, and start to use these principles. Because as he mentioned, if you use one of these things, it's going to change your life. If you use two, three, four of these principles, wow, it's going to land us in a place where we're not only transforming our own lives, we're transforming the lives of countless other people. And so this is our opportunity to become the one, the one in our own story, to take full ownership of that and start to write the story that we always dreamed of writing. The pen is in your hand. I appreciate you so much for tuning into the show today. If you got a lot of value out of this, please share this out with your friends and family on social media and tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram and tag Ed as well. He's at Ed Milet. That's E-D-M-Y-L-E-T-T, double T's, Ed Milet on Instagram. And just let him know what you thought about this episode. And listen, again, we've got some incredible masterclasses, world-changing guests coming up very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.